Welcome to another message from LifePoint Church, located at 400 South Abilene in Valley Center, Kansas. For more information on LifePoint Church, go to our website at lpcag.org. It is our prayer to invest in generations to influence community. And now with today's message, here's Pastor Steve Rains. All right, so if you have your Bible, go to the book of Romans this morning. Uh, Romans this morning. Uh, we've been in this series now for, this is our third Sunday. Um, if I could just kind of catch us up uh, real quick in case you've not been with us. The book of Romans is an explanation of our need for the gospel. Just look at, the, look at your neighbor and say, I need the gospel. Right? And how God met that need and how the gospel works in our life. But here's the problem. A lot of people aren't open to the gospel. Um, they think they don't need the gospel because maybe they don't understand the bad news that they find themselves in. In the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Romans, which is where we're at, the it's the bad news about God's judgment on sin. You could entitle it the wrath of God. Some of your headings or your subheadings within chapter 1 and chapter 2 are, it's there. It's the wrath of God um, as it deals with God's judgment on sin and sinful human beings. And, and for, so for that matter, right, um, people struggle with comprehending, and maybe you have too, maybe you're here um, this morning and, and you struggle with this. You struggle with comprehending how could a loving God send someone to hell. Have you ever wrestled with that or, or had somebody ask you that question? And we know, I mean, short answer to that question is that, well, God doesn't send someone to hell. People send themselves to hell. But we're not going to unpack that this morning because here's the deal. In our modern culture, which we find ourselves living, the thought of God judging someone not only seems politically incorrect, but intolerant. So it go, it, it's good to, for us this morning, as, as you did last week, you, you dove into the second half of chapter 1 as we are doing today, we're, we're diving into chapter 2, it's good for us to wrestle with the topic of God's wrath. Aren't you glad you came to church? To feel really the weight of this topic to not skip the opportunity to have God bring some clarity to us about this. Because the reality is, is that the world doesn't need your opinion or your perspective on the idea of God's wrath. The world needs, you and I need to know and understand God's wrath. Right? I don't want to understand it. I'd rather put my, hand in the, my head in the sand and just act like the ostrich because it's a whole lot easier that way. So there are some chapters that we're coming to in, in our study in the book of Romans that, man, I am like so excited to preach about. I'm like, yes, can we just get there? You know, the other day I was like looking at the calendar going, when are we getting to Romans 8? Because Romans 8 is just like the bomb. Can we like fast forward and not do chapter 2, chapter 3 and just get to 8? Because that's like good news and today is like heavy. So let me ask you a question. What is the wrath of God? 
because we have a tendency to frame the attributes of God within the ideas of human personality and human, inten- uh, human tendencies. So let me give you an example. When we talk about the Father's love, for some of us in the room, that, way, that works really well if we had a great dad. Right? But if your dad wasn't good, if your dad was absent, if your dad was a deadbeat, then that doesn't work so well because you don't have a good understanding of what, the father, what a father heart is all about. Many of us struggle when we hear the, that statement, the wrath of God, because we have a tendency to go in our minds to an emotional response to a hot-headed person that's irrational, they're uncontrolled, they're, they're harsh, they're selfish, they're vindictive in what they say. I mean, some of us have had encounters with people like that even this last week, right? But God's wrath doesn't mean that. When we talk about God's wrath, we aren't talking about God flying off the handle in an uncontrolled rage and being vindictive and going, oh, shoot, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. To help us understand what, what wrath is or maybe better understand it, it would be good to know what the opposite of wrath is. So let me ask you a question. What would you say the opposite of wrath is? It's not love. I want to submit to you this morning that the opposite of wrath would be neutrality. And here's why. Because neutrality is a passive indifference. If God wasn't wrathful, then he would be passively indifferent towards sin. If we had time to unpack that further this morning, all of us would conclude that that, that that would be a very, 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 very bad situation if God was indifferent towards sin. Um, when it comes to evil and wrong, God's not neutral. When God exercises his wrath on evil, It is to say that God, if I could paint it this way, God is totally hostile to that which is evil. He refuses to condone it. He refuses to overlook it. He refuses to to come to terms with it. That's why he judges it. Aren't you glad you came to church today? God's wrath is, is... in active opposition to evil. Do you understand that? Not just evil in general, but opposition to to the ungodly, to the wicked, to unrighteous behavior of people that suppress the truth by their wickedness, according to Romans chapter 1. And as we come to our text today, we we paint, I mean, Romans 1 and really, chapter 2 paints this, this, this dark picture. I mean, sin is dark. Sin is destructive. Sin is death. And, and, and it kind of just, we, we put those, those, those actions and what sin is up against that black canvas of, of sin. But then, then the gospel comes in. And amidst the black canvas of sin, 
you have this beautiful gospel of Christ. Don't you wish that was a real diamond? But you have this beautiful gospel sitting in the dark canvas of our sin. Sparkling, sparkling, reflecting the love and the justice and the righteousness of our God. Inviting us to come closer and to, to look at it. That we would see it more clearly. And that it would be revealed in a greater way in our heart. And so to help, to help us understand more clearly, Paul breaks down humanity in four different groups, if you will. Last week, we, Pastor Levi touched on the first group. It was the depravity of the Gentile society. That's my, that, that would be my bullet point of chapter 1, 18 through 32. So those that are, that are just depraved, they're lost in their depravity, and whatever they want to do, that's what they do, and Paul gives us some illustrations of how that plays out. But then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, we see the brokenness and the depravity of the moralist. And that's who we're looking at today. In my studies this past week, I was just reading several different books and, and commentaries upon this, this, uh, this topic and where we're going today. And, and I opened up an old book from Max Lucado entitled The Grip of Grace. And he was unpacking chapter 2 and, and within that, that opening chapter, portion of the chapter, he mentions Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, you know what? What disturbs me most about Jeffrey Dahmer, and if you don't know who he is, he killed 17 men and boys in the late 80s or late 70s and early uh, through the early 90s. Um, murdered them, cut them up. Netflix did a documentary on his life. And let me just say this, if I can call a timeout. If you're a follower of Jesus, don't watch that garbage. That's not, that's not going to fill you with life. It's going to fill you with someone's depravity. Right? But here's the deal. It's not that Netflix did a documentary on, on, on his life. I don't even know what it was about other than that it came out several months ago. Um, but, but maybe what would disturb me most as you look at what he did and and how evil those actions were is that the report is is that in prison he came to Christ. And so the moralist would say this, um, it's not possible. He doesn't deserve it. Someone that did those things that are that wicked and that, that vile and that, that disgusting and that so broken and so evil and no way. And they struggle with, could God forgive a Jeffrey Dahmer? Some people are like, no way. Um, the Gospel Coalition did an article. They interviewed the pastor, Roy Ratcliffe, who baptized Dahmer. 
There's an interesting article that I read this week about it, but the moralist says, man, it's not possible. He deserves wrath. It's interesting, as Paul writes uh, in chapter 1, he constantly refers to sinful humanity as, as they, them, and them. It's a nice, safe, third-person pronoun that keeps the accusing finger pointed elsewhere, isn't it? But in chapter 2, he flips it. The distant third-person pronoun becomes none of that. It goes to I, me, and us as he's writing the second chapter. So in, beginning, in the beginning of chapter 2, suddenly there's this 180 degree as he's writing to the, this early church. It goes from the outward third person to, of they to the inward pointing second person of you. So it really causes us to examine our hearts. And, and this is the deal, right? The bottom line, up against this darkness in the brokenness of humanity, sin is sin. Right? Um, and the bottom line is that all of humanity is listed as we look through chapters 1 through 3. And no wonder Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that there is, there is no one righteous, not even one. Um, in 3.23 he says, all, for all, have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you know what that does? That makes the, that makes the gospel shine all the more, doesn't it? Because you realize how awesome it is that God would save the likes of a Jeffrey Dahmer or the likes of you. Today, we're going to look at the moralist and see four ways in which God will judge the moralist or the moral person. Also, how God will judge a person who has never heard the gospel because we've all heard that one. We've all wrestled with that one. Well, what, what about the person back in the jungle of Africa that never hears the gospel? How, how is it just? How is God going to be just with them? So let me just give you this first thought. God will judge based on knowledge. Look at it, verse one, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the, the very same thing. So the question just in, in, in biblical exposition as you read your Bible, when you see a therefore, what's the question that you need to ask yourself? What's it there for? Why is the therefore, therefore, right? So as you look at that, you say, well, why is that therefore, therefore? And it takes you back to Romans 1. And, and God is talking to about depraved Gentiles. In verse 20, we read this, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. You look at the earth, the makeup of the earth the intentionality and the design of it. That if we were any closer to the sun, you'd be a marshmallow. And any farther away, you would be an icicle. 
If there is a design, then there has to be a designer, and creation speaks of the creator. I mean, yesterday we're driving across the Flint Hills, and I'm just looking out across the the beauty of the Flint Hills going, God, you are absolutely amazing. So just as the wicked are without excuse, so too is the moralist. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. Ouch. Here is what Paul is doing. For the person who says, man, I'm a good person. Uh, you, if you would have asked me back in high school, hey, are you a Christian? I would have said to you, yes, man, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a good person most of the time. I'm an American, and I go to church on Christmas and Easter. I'm a Christian. Um, for the person who says I'm a good person, in order for you to make that statement, listen to me, in order for you to make that statement, that presumes that you know what is good. You can't say you're a good person if you know what is good, right? Implied is I'm good versus I'm not bad or, or I'm bad or whatever. So you know what is good and you know what is bad, but how do you know what is good or bad? People like to reduce it to a list. You know, I'm nice, I'm kind, I don't speed too often. Um, you know, I, I, I uh, try to encourage people. Um, for some, it's like, hey, I don't lie too often. Hey, I practice safe sex, it's all good. People like to reduce it to a list. As if to say, because I've done some good things, I shouldn't come under judgment. Paul says, not true. Because the standard of righteousness, or if I can go back to our word this morning, the plumb line of righteousness is not you, it's God. And in order for the moralist to to be a good person, they have to overlook where they weren't a good person. Romans chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore, which takes us back to Romans chapter 1, verse 29 through 31. Put it up on the screen if you would. There's two lists that I want you to look at real quick, all right? Romans chapter 1, 29 verse 30, through 31. There, uh, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, ma- uh, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithful, heartless, and ruthless. Galatians chapter 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit versus that of the flesh. 19 says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual impurity, impu- uh, sexual immorality, impurity, Purity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, and enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, all things like these. Right? So, I mean, there's like two heavy lists. If you would do something for me real quick, if you would just take your index finger and just like point it up in the air. If you're not sure what your index finger is, it's not your middle finger. Okay, we're not talking about foreign relations in this place this morning. Just take your, your index finger, point it up in the air. And um, now you look at the list. Point to the one that you struggle with or maybe you've struggled with in the past 
Wherever now and then it, it rises up and you're like, Ugh, that one. Look at your neighbor and see if you can figure out which one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right? <laughs> Here's Paul's point. When a person is capable of passing judgment, that shows an intellectual understanding of the law, of what is good and what is bad. So if I understand good or bad, then I'm accountable to God for good and bad. And that's Paul's argument. Yesterday, I was telling Robin that I'm going to do this little exercise in, in a church this morning. And, and so we were talking about the list, and she's like, so which one are you going to point at? I said, that's none of your business. I said, come to church tomorrow and find out. She's not here. No, I'm just kidding. So, again, just remember, sin is sin. And it's all really dark up against the glorious perfection and righteousness of who God is. You can't categorize it. We like to, and, and, and there's some sins that are heavier, obviously, than, than other sins, but Paul goes on to say in verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, and, and you may like getting off the hook, right? I mean, we, we like that, but, but if you were a victim of someone else's actions and the judge didn't show up or the judge was indifferent in rendering a verdict in your situation, you would be upset with that judge, would you not? You would say that that judge is unjust. Paul says, do you suppose, that word suppose is in the Greek is logais, uh, which means logically, do you think that you, you can get away with judging others and not be judged yourself on the same things? Oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape, escape the judgment of God. If you know good and haven't done good, then that's sin, and God judges sin. So, God will judge based on knowledge. Secondly, God will judge based on the heart. God knows the heart. God sees the heart. Verse uh, 4 says, Or do you presume? Meaning, presume is this idea of treat with contempt. A person who knows what sin is, and is like, yeah, but it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a lie. It's not that big of a deal, you know. Um, and, and so we excuse, we reason, we try to justify it. God's righteousness demands that God judges sin. But if, if it doesn't, that means, if he doesn't do it immediately, that means that he will do it eventually. Right? What does God do? That why is he sometimes you see things unfold and you're like God why are you why are you slow in, in bringing this to a closure by bringing judgment and Paul gives the answer on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance 
there's some maybe even watching online or in the room today and, and you're like, well, man, I came, I'm pretty much, I, I, I don't care about God or, or I hate God or I'm not interested in God. And, um, and the reality is, is the sun came up for you just like it did for me and everyone else in this room. It did it for the person who loves God and it did it for the person who doesn't love God. I mean, someone can, can um, not be interested in God, not know God, and they too can have meaningful relationships with people, can't they? They too can have strong families. And I would just submit to us that that's the kindness of God upon his creation. And there's this common grace upon humanity and, and he, that, that he is a good and gracious God. If Philip Yancey put it this way, Grace means there is nothing I can do to make God love me more and nothing I can do to make God love me less. And God wants you to come to salvation. And here's what happens when, when you don't acknowledge the grace and forbearance of God, whether you're a believer or you're an unbeliever, is that, that, that you don't just remain static. We either are growing closer or we're moving away from God. What happens if we treat God with contempt, verse 5, but because your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, or excuse me, wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What makes the heart hard? When a person doesn't repent, what makes the heart hard when you don't recognize your own sinfulness and your need for a Savior? That hard, that, that's the Greek word, seclertos, where we get the hardening, hardening of the arteries. Verse 5, but because of your heart and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath because God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You reject God's moving, you reject God revealing himself to you, you reject God speaking to you in the past, and your heart becomes hard. And so what will uh, God, so God will judge people based on, on their knowledge, what they knew. He will judge based on the heart, but third, he will judge based on deeds. Verses 6 through 10, Paul isn't talking about how to get saved here, but rather how God is going to judge. The bedrock of Christianity is this truth, that we are not saved by good works. We are not saved by deeds. We're not saved by, uh, by doing sacraments at church of communion and baptism um, or attendance. No amount of anything, whether they're good things, will get you into heaven. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says this, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that is not from yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. There is no t-shirt when you get to heaven that says it's by what you did. Right? That being said, look at Romans chapter 2, verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. Think your works are good enough? Have you sinned? When we can all say, yeah, we've all made the list. I saw you point. <laughs> we've all made the list. And because we've made the list, we're in trouble. 
Jesus. We have hope. Right? You can, I won't take time because of time this morning, but I would just reference you to go and read Revelations chapter 20, verses 12 through 15. So there are those who didn't receive Christ and then those who did. Verse 7 of Romans 2 says this, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and mortality, he will give eternal life. He's, he's talking about people who are saved and they're doing these things. And what is, let me ask you this morning, what is your life about? Is it at the end of your day, at the end of my day, is it about the glory of God and not your glory? Now, let's be, let's be real. Hopefully that's all of our ambitions, but let's just be honest. There's days where I fall short in that. Hopefully it's not, those don't outweigh the days where my prayer is, as Jesus made the world be a better place because I've served you today and I've demonstrated you. Maybe that be, may that be the norm. But that's, I mean, there's days where, aren't you glad some days just end, <laughs> right? Um, but may it be for his glory. I mean, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Your life is about glorifying God and living for him and bringing him pleasure, bringing him honor. And what is a mark of a Christian then? A mark of a Christian is that we have set our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. We have this heavenly perspective. And, and aren't you glad, man, I'm so glad that the Lord is the one who will judge justly and, and be righteous to every person throughout all time and, and he'll get it right unlike you and me. That Christ is our passion. That's what we're living for. He's not an amusement. He's not an extra. He's just not a, 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 a place in a block of time on our weekly calendar. Man, he is like it. Verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking, that are living, well, what makes me happy? It's all about me. Let's talk about me. Let's talk about what I want to do. Let's talk about what I want to buy. Let's talk about where I want to be, what I want to, what I want to be, and how I want to do it. And no. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, how, how does that play out? It, if your life is about you, then when God asks you to do something, you aren't going to want to do it right? But obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. God will judge based on deeds, right? Verse 9, there will be tribulation. It's the separation of kernel from wheat and distress. It's this narrow, that word distress is this narrow space. It's a, it's a cell. It's a, a small passageway. It's a, that place where you're being squeezed down. For every human being who does evil, so God's going to judge based on knowledge, on heart, on deeds. Finally, God will judge with impartiality. Verse 11 and 12, For God 
shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So there's two groups of people here. Those who knew the law, they're judged based on what they knew or what they know. It's this, you've, if you've been around church very long, you've probably heard the term the age of accountability, right? And I don't know if that's necessarily the right terminology. I mean, this is, um, it's us trying to unpack and get an idea, but I think it's more the condition of, of accountability, not the age of accountability. Because for you that have kids in your room, some of your kids, man, when they were two years old, you know, you could just give them the look and they knew what was right or wrong. Others of them, they're 12 years old and you're just like, and they're just like, woo! Right? So it's more probably this condition of accountability versus the age of accountability. Um, Verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who are justified. The second group of people, those who have never heard the word, for all have sinned without the law, will also perish without the law. So there's three criteria. Just let me give them to you real quick as we wrap this up. People are accountable because of creation. Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. It's amazing to me as I read and and dive into different different fields that are way beyond my capacities, but to, to read of in the medical field or in the neurology, neurology excuse me, or, or different sciences in, in hearing um, people who are way smarter than me going, I don't know how else you can say that this thing was put together other than by a creator. Your human body speaks of it. The universe speaks of it. Humanity speaks of it. Creation sings of it. And then there's people are accountable because of their own conduct. Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So what that is saying simply is this. Even people that don't, know the, don't have a knowledge of God can do good things, right? They love people, um, care for people, help people. I mean, we have people, we, we have people close to us that are incredibly generous people that, that have, I mean, they'll weep over situations um, going on in people's lives, but yet they're far from God. There's good people. Within cultures, there's cultures and people that are, that are some, they're, they're doing things that are right. And, and they're accountable for their conduct. And lastly, there's people 
are accountable because of their conscience. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, we could go into talking about having an open, like a hyperactive con- conscience and all that stuff, but we're not going to take time this morning to do that. But, but they feel bad when they do things they know they shouldn't do. Have you ever been there? And they have pleasure when they do things they know that they should do. I'm going to help this old lady across the street, or I'm going to go shovel my neighbor's driveway, or I'm going to uh, bake um, that neighbor a cake, or, or whatever. And you say, man, I just feel pretty good about that. The conscience can either excuse or convict a person. And the Bible tells us that God knows what is going on in our hearts and our mind. He knows our thoughts from afar. Scripture tells us in Psalms 139, if the worship team would come, in, in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, it says this, On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the, secret men, the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Jeremiah 17, 10 says this, But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. Let me just close with three thoughts. First one is this. Um, God's wrath is terrible. It's heavy. I mean, you came to church probably this morning going, well, I'm glad Levi got that over with last week. And here we are again. It's a heavy topic. But in, in, in talking about it, we have to understand that his wrath is perfect. He judges righteously and rightly. Um, no one experiences hell by accident. No one, God will never go Oh, stink. I read the wrong name. <laughs> it's not going to happen. So God's wrath is terrible. I mean, there, there's the weight in the room this morning of this, this subject, and I totally get that. But secondly, God's kindness is incredible. The kindness of God draws us to repentance. I mean, you look at this, and you're just like, you know, you, you see the, the darkness of sin and all of a sudden the gospel just shows up and you're like, man, that's what hopefully, that's what your eyes fixate on is the beauty and the power of Christ and his gospel. That, that it's what's illuminating your heart and your mind. And when you see broken humanity doing stupid stuff. You don't want to throw stones at humanity. You wanted them to see and encounter the gospel. Just like you and I need to experience and encounter the gospel. It's not that we get saved every day, that's not what I'm saying, but that we just, man, we just marvel at this, this message and, and the work of Christ and who Christ is and, and our eyes 
are just like, wow, look at all the facets of the beauty of the love of God. Look how it just sparkles as, as light hits it differently. And I'm just like captured by his grace. God's kindness is incredible. And lastly, and in that God's kindness being incredible, God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. And lastly, is God's salvation is available. The Bible says this, today is the day of salvation. The Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will, not might be, but will be saved. Would you just say that with me? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, sorry, will be saved. Father God, we just bow our heads before you. We humble our hearts before you. God, if there's anyone in this room this morning or watching online that needs to respond to the incredible grace and love of Christ demonstrated through the gospel and your work on the cross and your resurrection. God, may today be the day of salvation. That today would be the day that they call upon the name of the Lord and they will experience transformation in their life. And though their sins may be as scarlet, that you would make them white as snow. If you're here this morning and you've never allowed Christ his rightful place in your heart, you've lived for yourself, and all of us in this place have been there at one point in our life, but you know that as you look over the pages of your life this morning, you go, man, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. There's sin, there's sin, there's sin, there's sin. And you understand this morning the weight of your sin the heaviness really of God's wrath but in his wrath he provides you a door of escape through not what you've done but what Christ has done for you it's a free gift but he's saying here will you take the gospel Will you take this free gift of salvation? And maybe you've never done that this morning, but something's going on in your heart, and you're like, man, I want to know this God who, yes, he's righteous, and yes, he has a plumb line, that he's going to measure my actions and the actions of others, not against ourselves, but against his righteousness. But yet he's made a way for me to become righteous because of what Christ did on the cross and his resurrection and I want to receive that free gift of grace. If you've never done that this morning, or maybe you did it at one point, and then you turned away, and you've been living for yourself, and you're here this morning, not by accident, but I believe by divine appointment, and God has been speaking to you. Maybe you feel like you've kind of been pushed into a corner a little bit this morning, but God is speaking to you, and he's saying, today is the day of salvation. Will you respond and receive this incredible gift of salvation? 
through Christ. You're here this morning and you're like, man, that's me. Would you pray for me, Steve? Would you just slip up your hand? Anyone at all? Say, man, I've never asked Christ to be in my life or, or I've turned away and I've been living for myself and I need to come home today. Today is the day I'm coming home. Anyone at all? Okay, Father, you know our hearts. You know where we're at in our relationship with you. And God, in the heaviness of this topic this morning, God, there's been names and faces that have gone through my mind that are far from you. God, I pray for those individuals right now, as do my brothers and sisters here. Pray for the names and faces that lest they repent and turn to you, they will encounter the wrath of God. That's weighty. It's not a popular message. But God, from the Garden of Eden, you declared the way of salvation when you said, that my son will crush the head of the serpent. His heel may be bruised, but the serpent's head will be crushed. And Lord, we're six, way, six weeks away from Easter Sunday where that prophecy was fulfilled when Christ hung on the cross and three days later, he rose again. And so, God, we pray, Lord, for a sovereign move of God. We pray, Lord, for the veil that's covering people's eyes, maybe that's covering our eyes, that it would be removed. And, God, our eyes would be directed and captivated by the glorious gospel. And, Lord, may we not be in the camp of the moralist, nor in the camp of the depraved, we would be in the camp of the redeemed that would be passionately pursuing you and passionately trying to make you known, allowing and asking you, God, and be my number one this day and flow through me this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This concludes the teaching. Thank you for listening. And we hope you can join us for next Sunday's service with Pastor Steve Raines.